morning everyone. Morning. I'm your trusty principal, if you haven't met me before, Brian's my name. Uh, we're uh, doing a three-part series to kick off the semester on the theme of being known by God. Uh, sometimes you get a text given to you and you expound it as for your sermon or you get a topic. Sometimes the topic chooses you, so that's the kind of where I am with this one. I've been uh, living this theme for a very long time. It's almost 20 years ago. I had a really difficult patch in my life and the theme of being known by God became very important to me and it was a great blessing to me. And uh, I'm a slow learner, so I'm just kind of putting it together and a book will come out later in the year and you're sort of a test run on some ideas here. Uh, yesterday we looked at that beautiful passage at the end of John's Gospel uh, where Mary Magdalene is uh, weeping because Jesus uh, has been taken away from her. And she doesn't recognise him initially, but in the end, just the sound of her name uttered in the way that she was used to hearing it uh, brought home to him, to her, that uh, it was Jesus. And uh, we learnt there that uh, being known by Jesus precedes knowing him, which is then meant to lead to making him known to others. Tomorrow we'll look at a passage in Colossians where our memory and destiny are tied up with our identity and our life is hidden with Jesus in God. That idea of uh, God knows us better than we know him and it's secure there. And today we're looking at what, what, what's probably the most common use of the notion of being known by God in the Bible. Namely, it's uh, effect of bringing comfort into people's lives. And that was the experience uh, that brought me to the topic those years ago and continues to bring comfort to me today. Uh, the uh, prophet Nahum puts it very well. He says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So that comforting notion that God knows us even in the most difficult times of our lives. Uh, Richard Baxter, the uh, 17th century Puritan, said, Being known by God is the full and final comfort of the believer. And J.I. Packer, who wrote uh, the best-selling book, Known, Knowing God, <laughs> that I, I tried to get the publisher to entitle my book the sequel, but, uh, <laughs> but they wouldn't go with that. So he claims that there's unspeakable comfort in being known by God. And today I'm going to attempt... Uh, the impossible and speak about it. <laughs> now, in spite of a sea of bright eyes and bushy tails, which is the Ridley Chapel, uh, it's still true that to be human is to experience sorrow. So some of you will have burdens and concerns that are weighing on you and this hopefully as we look at it together will be of some help to you. Um, others uh, can wait for that and it will come. <laughs> And uh, all of us will know people in those circumstances and hopefully we can learn how to bring comfort to them, um, even if it's not our experience currently. Uh, to be human is to experience sorrow. People go hungry, children die, the wicked prosper, good people suffer. Uh, if Jesus said the poor will always be with you, so are the ill, the brokenhearted, the grief-stricken and the lonely. I'm in my mid-50s, which I think of as extending to 59. <laughs> and uh, none of my peers, whom the, the ones I've known all my life, um, have escaped having some burden that they were un uh, not expecting and found very difficult to deal with. Uh, the passage we read in Malachi, however, is a specific form of distress. 
It's this idea that sometimes serving God seems futile. Did you notice that? Uh, in verses uh, 13 or 14 uh, and 15. Uh, you've said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. So the righteous were meant to be blessed, but the unrighteous, it seemed at least, were being blessed. Evil doers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. There doesn't seem to be any point in obeying God or in going about fasting and repenting. And people seem to be getting off scot-free. And those who do seek the Lord in this text are understandably discouraged and they're wondering, doesn't God notice when people flout his authority? Is there no difference between the righteous and the wicked, those who are faithful to him and those who are not? And the issue struck to the very heart of their identity as the people of God. They wondered who they are. If the people of God are meant to be characterized by God's blessing, where is the blessing? Doesn't God notice their efforts to live in faith and obedience. And these notes are struck in other parts of the Old Testament. Famously in Psalm 73, it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In more general terms in Ecclesiastes, it says, Here's another enigma that occurs on, that occurs on earth. Sometimes there are righteous people who get what the wicked deserve and there are wicked people who get what the righteous deserve. And friends, I, I think this is a live issue and a real temptation for students, staff and faculty at college because there is very often for us a material cost to following our, following our calling. And it may be that uh, during these years, uh, your super account's not uh, going ahead very quickly. And maybe you'll see your friends buying houses, maybe more than one, and uh, you're not in that situation. Uh, maybe they're uh, taking holidays that you can't afford, although there's uh, study tours seem to happen pretty uh, <laughs> regularly around here. Uh, maybe they're driving cars that you'd like to drive and you can't afford. Now, this is my... Um, contribution, taking one for the team. My 15-year-old Corolla is just around the corner there, and uh, so no one will be envying me on that score. You can thank me later. So, what should uh, the, the Ferraris at home in the garage? What should God's people do when things go wrong? When we feel let down? When serving God seems futile? Well, this little passage in Malachi, I think, uh, gives us three things to think about. Uh, in those circumstances. The first one seems uh, pretty obvious, but I think it's a, a point worth taking. In verse 16, it says, those who feared the Lord talked with each other. That's it. When serving God seems futile, God's people should talk to each other. It's uh, pretty uh, clear, but it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Um, it would be lovely to know what they were talking about, uh, but we're not told. Were they talking about their need for repentance? Were they offering some encouragement to each other? Uh, were they speaking truth? They might have even been complaining to God together. Do you think about that idea? I think we had the Psalms class yesterday, didn't we? Some of you here will be in that class. There's, there's a big difference, friends, between grumbling against God, which God doesn't like very much, 
and complaining to God. Complaining is the English word for the psalm of lament. And uh, um, this is probably what was happening in part, I just hazard to conjecture, that they were getting together communally and having a whinge before God. And the most frequent type of psalm in the book of Psalms is, of course, the lament, both individual and communal. So people got together and cried out to God, a repeatable cry of pain, rage, sorrow, grief in the midst of suffering and alienation. And several laments complain that God has forgotten or abandoned the psalmist. Psalm 10 says, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you pay no attention during our time of trouble? Now, it's a mistake to read these psalms of lament as if they're expressing unbelief. Um, because the opposite's actually the case. The psalmist is lamenting because they believe that God is on their side and that he will act for them. Um, almost all of the lament psalms end in trust and praise, and many take special comfort in being known by God. So the rest of Psalm 10, the end of that psalm says, But you, O God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So the cry that God has forgotten the psalmist is in effect a petition to be remembered by him. And the Psalter is dotted with both complaints that God's not paying attention and reassurances that he hasn't forgotten his people. I think we rush to the second one and we don't do enough with the first. Uh, laments offer us the opportunity uh, when we're in genuine distress to voice our frustrations and our pain in the context of our faith in God. Uh, in his own dark night, even, or should I say especially, Jesus prayed a lament. He prayed, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Straight out of Psalm 22, the beginning of that psalm. So to complain to God should not be equated with unbelief. And lament in the Bible is not so much a crisis of faith as it is a crisis of understanding. And lament expresses both disappointment and trust in God. And I think we need to recover it. If uh, my eavesdropping is correct, this is one of the things they talk to each other about. And lament can lead to a renewed confidence in God's care and provision and an active taking refuge in God. So there's really three steps. You lament, you find confidence and trust, and then you take refuge in God. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Do you? Do you have people you talk to honestly about your struggles? Are there people you're accountable to that you, you're connected with and know you intimately that uh, you talk to when things go wrong, when serving God feels futile? Ridley has some opportunities for that. Uh, we have the uh, learning communities. Uh, we have the life and ministry groups. We have the prayer uh, triplets. We're still doing them. And uh, um, in, in my case, there are people, and this is one of the difficulties of moving to Melbourne, that, that I lost some of them, with whom I could talk uh, honestly and openly. Uh, Frank was one of them. And uh, um, um, the word Frank brings home to me 
some of that uh, comfort, believe it or not. Frank's not particularly empathetic, actually. I shouldn't oversell him here. <laughs> but uh, he, he was always there. So during the, those uh, few years when I had the most difficult time of my life to this point, Frank would ring me every Sunday night. And uh, uh, I would tell Frank what was going on. And Frank would say, you said something similar last week. <laughs> Somehow there was a comfort in that. So, uh, when serving God seems futile, God's people should talk to each other. I recommend it. Secondly, when serving God seems futile, this is our main point, we should remember that God knows the troubles of our lives. So whatever the exact nature of their discussion, in verse 16 it says, the Lord listened and heard. Beautiful words, aren't they? The Lord listened and heard. But even better... A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. Now, God's library is an interesting theme in the Bible. There are different books mentioned, so we mustn't mix them up. The, the most famous one is the Book of Life, and that's a pretty important one. That's a, a kind of heavenly register of those who have faith in Jesus and have been chosen by God from the foundation of the world. So that's the uh, very important book. That turns up at several points, especially but probably most famously in the judgment scene at the end of Revelation. Then the books are another thing in his library that is called the books. They're the uh, um, account of all the deeds of those who will be condemned. Really sobering thought, but in Revelation and I think, uh, where else? I think uh, there's another, and Daniel as well. There's a, a, a record of the deeds of the unrighteous, is the way that Daniel puts it, from which God will mete out justice. Um, but I don't think that's what we're looking at here. I think the clue to what's happening here is the way that Malachi depicts God as a great king. So great, in, in 1.14, Malachi is uh, said to be a great king whose name is to be feared among the nations. Now, if you go back to Esther and Ezra, the kings in those books have something very similar to what we're reading about here. So, for example, in Esther 2.23 it says, a recording in the book of the annals in the presence of the king was made. And Esther 6 verse 1, the book of the chronicles, the record of his reign is ordered by the king. And in Ezra 5 verse 17, a search for the royal archives takes place. So it seems to be that um, a king surrounded by his heavenly servants instructs a scribe to record the events in the royal archives. That's what this book, this scroll of remembrance is. It's a record of what's going on for the righteous in Malachi. And somehow that's of great benefit and comfort. How does that work? In response to the concern of the faithful that God had not noticed the injustice in their day, and their own determination to obey him, there was written a book for, of those, a record of those who feared the Lord and respected him. Uh, anyone heard of Hugh McKay? He's a kind of best-selling, popular uh, psychology, social researcher uh, person. <laughs> and he has a book called What Makes Us Tick. He looks at the 10 desires that drive us. This is the kind of thing that people talk about from now, time to time. He, he says that we have a desire to connect, to be useful, 
be something for you folk to think about. Uh, to <laughs> you're all very useful. I just made you should be encouraged by that. <laughs> to belong for love and so on. So these basic drives. Now, interestingly, that there are no chapter uh, numbers. They're not listed in any specific order. But he says there's one desire that stays with you from the beginning of your life to the end, no matter who you are. Universal desire. He says it's this. It's the desire to be taken seriously, but which he then goes on to explain as the desire to be noticed, to matter, to be appreciated, to be valued, to be remembered. That's uh, um, uh, how he sees human nature and the way we're driven. Now, the sad thing, of course, is that uh, how many of you can name uh, the first name of your maternal great-grandfather? Hands up if you know his name. You're not going to be remembered long then, are you? But, uh, <laughs> but the nice thing is that uh, those who feared the Lord, a uh, scroll of remembrance was written. So we do get remembered. Um, Hugh McKay gives one really uh, powerful, I think it's powerful, hope you do too, uh, illustration. Helen Bamber was a campaigner for the care of torture victims and she visited Belson concentration camp at the end of World War II. And there she met an, an old woman who was about to die, and the woman, this is his words, rasped out the horrific account of her experiences in the camp. And Bamba said to her, I'm going to tell your story. That's what he said, as uh, she said to her. And this seemed, apparently, to calm the distressed woman. This is, again, McKay. He says, I think she knew she was going to die, oh, this Bamba said. She didn't want to die, and her story not be told, that nobody would know. So this was a woman who was anxious, even at her death, not to be ignored or forgotten. When all other desires have left us or become irrelevant, we are left with the desire to be acknowledged, identified, appreciated, and remembered. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in, the presence, uh, in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. In times of distress, we often feel worthless and unloved, as if no one cares or even notices. Being known by God, God's book of remembrance puts the lie to those destructive thoughts. Interestingly, right throughout the Bible, this is a theme that comes up. So the three low points in Israel's history, what were they? So I, I don't think uh, being in slavery in Egypt was that much fun. And then wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, going round and round in circles, like uh, sitting in the doctor's waiting room for 40 years. That wouldn't be very much fun either. <laughs> and then finally, exile. That was also uh, um, not uh, uh, terrific either. In all those cases, God reassures his people that he knows them in the midst of their distress. So in Exodus, the passage we read, it says that uh, the, uh, the Israelites performed hard labour and uh, they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. What did God do in response? He looked on the Israelites and knew them, is what it says literally. So the themes obscured in translation, sadly. For those of you doing Hebrew, it's just the verb yada, which has a wide semantic domain and can be translated cared for, looked after. But known is really the central idea. And following their rescue from Egypt, they sojourned in the wilderness, as I said, 
And uh, God says in Hosea 13 verse 5, I knew you in the desert. It's translated, I cared for you, but it's just the same verb again, the verb to know. In the land of burning heat. In the wilderness, God knew their distress and provided for them in spite of their disobedience, of course, which led to the uh, aimless wandering. And then finally, the theme of longing for home. In, in the ancient world, exile was an extreme form of punishment. And the whole nation, of course, got, uh, or what was left of it, got exiled, or most of it, in 587 BC by Nebuchadnezzar to uh, Babylon. And uh, um, in Psalm 137, it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. It's actually in the Psalter, not just in Boney M's lyrics, <laughs> for those of you who know that song. Um, and the book of Lamentations records the devastating effect on God's people. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. So there's that desire again to be known in the midst of distress. And uh, um, the, in Isaiah 49, it says, The Lord uh, has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That's what they were crying out. But God had not forgotten his people in exile. And in Isaiah 49, verse 15, very movingly, it says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. So the closest human bond between a mother and a child, God's bond and attentive care of us is greater. Even than that. So Psalm 137, uh, sorry, Psalm 31, verse 7 says, God knows the troubles of our lives. And I think uh, it, it's put very well. And as I mentioned, this was uh, a theme that was of real help to me at a point in my life, uh, to know that God had not abandoned me, that I had a sense of safety and security, a fixed point when everything else was seeming shaky. And the comfort I received from God wasn't the kind of um, hop out of bed in the morning, whistle happy tune. Uh, it was something that gave me a steadiness. It probably doused um, a pessimism that might have otherwise engulfed me. Um, but it was very important. And uh, often I think this is what people need as a first step at least in the alleviation of suffering, to know that they are known. So when serving God seems futile, God's people should talk to each other. When serving God seems futile, we should remember that God knows the troubles of our lives. And thirdly, from our passage in verses 17 and 18, when serving God seems futile, God confirms our identity as his precious children. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. I think it's a common thing for people in distress to question their identity, to wonder who, who they are. They had a sense of their identity before the troubles, and when the troubles came, they, they kind of feel uncertain and shaken. And in these verses, it's a wonderful thing to see the way that God confirms the identity of his people to whom he is attentive. A scroll of remembrance was written in the presence of God concerning those who feared him, and they belong to him as his treasured possession. He knows them and relates to them as a father who has compassion 
on his son.